6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. We're going to explore the epistle to the Hebrews. And uh, I think it's fair to say that this is probably the most misunderstood book in the New Testament. I think there are passages in it that have no less than 16 different views expressed by competent commentators. Um, And yet, even though it's called the riddle, book of the New Testament. If we go at it with an open mind and with very careful hermeneutics, theories of interpretation, I think you'll be surprised how it will just unfold and be clear. Not only to understand the book, but I think we'll also understand why it is that the majority of readers are confused by it. So that's our challenge. And we are in the first session of the book of Hebrews. If you look at the New Testament, of course, you have five Gospels, as I would look at them. I consider Acts, in effect, a fifth Gospel. You have 13 epistles that are assigned by the Apostle Paul, and you have eight that are called the Hebrew epistles, and uh, then, of course, one prophetic book at the end, the Revelation. And uh, the two pivotal epistles, major doctrinal epistles, are the book of Romans, of course, and the book of Hebrews, the one that we're going to undertake here. The, are seven, the seven, of the, seven of Paul's letters were to seven churches, which is interesting because they parallel the seven kingdom parables of Matthew 13. And there are three pastoral epistles, epistles written not to churches but to pastors, to Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. But we're in the... Uh, and by the way, three of the church epistles are called the prison epistles because he, he was in house arrest, but he did, did it from Rome during that time. But in this, these Hebrew Christian epistles, we have the book of Hebrews that we're going to focus on. Now, and we'll learn some surprising things about that. Not one of the eight so-called Hebrew Christian epistles are addressed to a church. That's going to be very significant, I think. That's not addressed to the church. It's addressed, but it's very important to understand who it is addressed to. Because unless you understand who's addressed to, you're going to misunderstand a lot of things about it. It is littered with some very disturbing warnings, which seem, on the face of them, to contrast with some of the assurances of the church epistles. There are passages in Romans 8 that would seem to be just in juxtaposition or opposed to Hebrews 6 and 10. 10 which are known widely as the two problem chapters in the Bible. Ephesians 2 and Philippians 1 seem to be in contrast to 2 Peter 1, and so forth. But this whole book is widely misunderstood, and we're not going to go backwards, we're going to go forward. It's going to reach out further than most people have any idea. That's the exciting news. 
Now, this is going to be what some people would call a tour de force in Christology. You're going to get a sweep, a grasp of who Jesus Christ really is. Mel Gibson's movie, a marvelous piece of work in many respects, is tragic in two respects. It's tragic in that it paints the crucifixion as a tragedy when it actually was an achievement planned before the foundation of the world. But the second thing is he doesn't get across who the person of Jesus Christ is. This epistle is going to change that. It is also going to focus on a topic that you rarely hear preached from pulpits. Yet it's one of the most frequent uh, 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 topics of both our Lord and, and in the epistles. Our inheritance as believers and the risk of forfeiting it. Many people confuse the possibility of losing your inheritance with your loss of salvation. They're not the same thing. And that's what we want to get clear before we even get into the epistle. This is going to challenge each of, our, each, each of us in the field of soteriology. That's the fancy theological word for the study of salvation. What's it all about? Most people, I believe, have no grasp of what goes on to be saved. We all have heard the evangelist call down a decision for Christ. You go down the sawdust trail and make a decision, and we celebrate that as if it's a climax. No, it's a starting gun. We're going to talk about soteriology, strange enough. One of the things that surprised me as I really got into this was its implications on eschatology. I never really thought of the book of Hebrews as a prophetic book. First and Second, Th first and second Thessalonians, of course, and many others. But we're going to be in for some surprises. There is more prophecy about the millennium than there is in any other period of time in the Bible. There's more prophecy about the millennium. Most people think that the millennium is confined to one chapter in the book of Revelation. Chapter 20 and that's it. There's more prophecy, cover to cover in the Bible, about the millennium than there is about any other period of time in history. And no wonder it is so timely for us right now to really understand this book. I want to say right up front, I'll make reference to it all through the talk, that uh, I am at great benefit by the tireless research of my wife. She has poured through over 50 major works that deal with these topics, and I'm the benefit of the, the perspectives that have come out of that research that I would not have had any other way. And so this is a, uh, this, uh, those of you that may have seen our previous publications in Hebrews. We'll see much of it that's familiar, of course, but you'll also see a fresh new look, and that's uh, about many topics, most of which I really am indebted to, my, my incredible bride, who is doing a book on uh, the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And that kingdom is the millennial kingdom. And the power is becoming an overcomer, which is really what Hebrews is all about. And so I'm a beneficiary of some incredible commitment on the part of my wife. So we're both doing materials in this area. And uh, so watch for the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Soon to be on your neighborhood newsstands, okay? Okay. 
Epistle of the Hebrews. It's one of the two greatest theological treatises in the New Testament, the first being Romans, of course. Israel, incidentally, is not one of many nations. Israel is treated in the Bible in contrast to the nations. It's interesting that there were 70 that went down to Egypt as a family, came out as a nation. And that's juxtaposed against 70 nations detailed in Genesis 10. The parallelism is very intentional. But it's not a subset, but Israel is a contrast and a focus. We're going to discover that the writer to the Hebrews leans heavily on the failures of Israel nationally so that we might avoid those. To the Greek mind, prophecy is prediction and fulfillment. Prediction and fulfillment, that's a Greek model. The Hebrew model of prophecy is prophecy's pattern. And they lean heavily in the rabbinical writings on looking at God's patterns, especially in their dealings with Israel. There's a deliberate parallel between what happens to Israel and the Messiah. They're always in parallel. That's why some people call this book, the book of Hebrews, the Leviticus of the New Testament. That's a book that you don't read, you study. Reading Leviticus is tedious, all that detail. But it's enriching if you take the trouble to dig in and study the book. Big difference. You're going to discover that Christ supersedes and fulfills almost everything in Judaism. The erotic priesthood is highly elaborated on. There's many other issues. You need to understand the reader. He's Jewish. This is a Jewish reader. It's a Jewish believer. Understand the predicament that guy had while the temple was still standing. There's lots of evidence that this was written just before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Visualize the predicament of a Jewish Christian. They're divinely appointed rituals in a divinely appointed place by divinely appointed people that he has to leave and reject and turn to this new idea. Tough spot. And by doing so, he gets ostracized from his family, from everybody around him. There was a lot of persecution. Understand his predicament, that's to whom this letter is written, primarily, not only, but primarily. The Jewish dilemma, a divinely appointed religion, divinely appointed priests, officiating divinely appointed temple, accomplishing divinely ordered services, ennobled through centuries. Understand the inertia here. How could believing priests and Pharisees remain, in their words, zealous of the law? They're not supposed to, according to Galatians, right? It was the Jewish religious world that crucified Jesus and was repudiating him. So, the church in Jerusalem had already lost Stephen, first martyr. James was killed in 62. We think it was between that window that this was probably written. And they all lost others in Acts 8 and 26 and so on. The churches in Galatia, special... Singled out in the epistle to the Galatians. Many of these believers were tempted to resort to apostasy, maybe just temporarily, to get out from under the persecution. That's not an option. That's part of the message. But it's, in my opinion, a small part of the message. A key part, but a small part. The author has been greatly disputed, and I'll come to that in a minute. But what is the author's objectives? Number one, to combat apostasy. That's in chapter 2 and 10 especially to encourage the reader to press on to spiritual maturity. That's the, the part you and I are going to focus on and to comfort them in their persecutions. That's the purpose of the letter. 
What is his method? He is going to demonstrate using the Old Testament alone. He's going to focus entirely on the, from Old Testament references, how the Messiah is superior to virtually everything in Judaism, but focusing on the three main pillars of Judaism. Angels, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood are going to be singled out where the Messiah is superior to and the fulfillment of all three of those. And that may not be a big issue for you and I, unless you're Jewish, but for them it was a big deal. But the lessons for us are going to prove astonishing. Now it's interesting that the writer, as he goes through that, that methodology, he's going to deviate from his logic to include five warnings. There are five major warnings. And those warnings are widely misunderstood by the casual reader unless they understand who is the reader and what are the issues being addressed. Don't take them out of context. So the Epistle of Hebrews, all about Christ, the new and living way. The first few chapters are going to be about Jesus. He's a new and better deliverer than anything available in Judaism. Better than the angels, better than Moses, a leader better than Joshua, a priest better than Aaron. That's the flavor of those first few chapters. Then he goes on to the whole issue of the cross. There's a new and better covenant that offers better promises than the law, offers a better sanctuary than the, the tabernacle or the temple ever did offer. There are lessons there, but they've been superseded. Sealed by better sacrifice than all the sacrifices throughout history were simply echoes in advance of the one on the cross. And of course it achieves better results, and we'll talk about that. Then the final chapters go into faith, the faith walk, and how it's a true and better response than keeping the law, and then it's parting words. That's a quick snapshot of the epistle. The riddle of the New Testament. The authorship is anonymous. It wasn't signed. And the library is full of commentators with conjectures about who wrote the book. There are all kinds of people that just presume Paul couldn't have written it, and they have some reasons why they think that. And they have other suggestions. We'll explore those briefly. Was it written by Paul? Or was it written by Apollos? Or Barnabas? There are major Bible scholars that support these views, or try to. Now, the, we know a lot about the author. The author clearly had a vast knowledge, knowledge of the Old Testament. Uh, he obviously was a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek-trained Jew, writing to Jewish believers who were under much persecution. That's obvious from the letter. No, no contest there. The issues that are joined include the nature of the warnings. That's going to be one of the problems, to understand what are those warnings, these five warnings all about. To whom were they addressed? And the dangers presented for not persevering. This is about persevering. This is all about finishing well. This is not an epistle that leads some to Christ. This assumes you've already accepted Christ. This is not an evangelistic epistle. It's one about finishing well. This is not about the starting gun. This is about the finish line. That's what it's all about. Now, who wrote the book of Hebrews? It's an unsigned book. Why? Turns out there was a good reason why it wasn't signed. And that reason is going to be useful to every one of us in this room. There are many theories, and I'll tell you candidly, I have some strong beliefs, and I'm going to express those beliefs, but I also want you to understand this is one view, and it's not 
Not everybody's in agreement with what I'm about to tell you. I'll tell you what I believe, and I'll show you why I believe it. I can't prove who wrote it. I obviously believe it's Paul, and I'll show you why. But there are good scholars who don't think so. Was it Apollos? Was it Barnabas? Priscilla? Priscilla, that's one of the conjectures that you hear a lot, or Paul himself. Well, Apollos. Some people feel that Apollos could have written the book of Hebrews. The problem with that view is there's no evidence for it. It's a conjecture you find in the literature, but there's no evidence to support it. In fact, Apollos was from Alexandria. And the, in, even in Alexandria, they associated, in the earliest days, the book with Paul. So if Apollos wrote it, he couldn't convince his hometown. Okay, So it's a small point, but the main point, there's no evidence for it. What about Barnabas? There are some uh, uh, that ascribe it to Barnabas. But again, there's no evidence in support of it. That, uh, these are just conjectures. There were circulating some spurious writings that were attributed to Barnabas that were discredited. But even if they hadn't been, the point is the style of those would-be Barnabas letters is totally different than the style of the book of Hebrews. So there isn't, not only is there no evidence for it, there's some suggestive evidence against it. Brought about Priscilla, the wife of Aquila. But here again, there's no evidence. Timothy is recorded as Paul's amanuensis in, in, in his letters. Where's the evidence that there was any assistant other uh, uh, than Timothy? None. Timothy was intimate with Paul, and Tim Timothy is implied to be intimate with the author of Hebrews, as an aside. Okay. Now, there are many style reasons that I... People say, well, it's not Paul's style. Wrong. It is Paul's style. I'll show you why. Um, many reasons. Peter, in fact, virtually states it as a fact. If we look at 2 Peter 3, starting verse 15, this is from Peter's second epistle. Peter says, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Now you need to understand, the second epistle of Peter was written to Jewish believers. So Peter is indicating that these readers have a letter from Paul. So if Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews, there is an epistle of Paul that is lost. And many scholars hold the view that that's impossible, that God preserved the canon. Okay? It's another case that if, 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 Paul, if, if there's a pistol lost, we have a new name for God again. Butterfingers. I'm being facetious, of course. Hebrews. 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 2, he wrote to... He, uh, it, he, it was his mission to speak to the Hebrews. Paul and Peter divided it up. Paul went to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jew. He goes, and in all his epistles, speaking of Paul, of this, this is Peter talking about Paul, and in all his epistles, Paul's epistles, speaking in them of these things in which some are some things hard to be understood. <laughs> Peter had trouble following some of Paul's logic. And he's probably talking about Hebrews 6, which we'll get to later, which they are unlearned and unsta unstable rest, and they also, uh, the other scriptures to their own destruction. Another phrase here not to miss. Peter calls Paul's letters scriptures. Scriptures. Peter didn't use that casually. He is regarding the writings of Paul as scripture. There are many messianic groups. 
Christians that had gotten into the, into the Jewishness of the Old Testament and uh, fellowship after some of those styles that have, uh, they don't take Paul seriously because Paul keeps pointing out that we're not under the law anymore and that they, these people like to be under the law, it turns out. And so they don't, this, this is a refutation of some of their views. Paul's writings are regarded by Peter as, script, as uh, scriptures. Second Timothy, Paul said, all scripture, most of it, no, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's a very strange word in the Greek. It actually means God breathed, letter by letter. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Those are four things. They're, they're profitable for doctrine. What is doctrine? It tells you what's right. What's reproof? That tells you what's not right. For correction, how to get it right. And, and for instruction, how to stay right. Okay? I find those four labels useful. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. It's easy to memorize in a Bible verse. What does it mean? Well, practically, doctrine tells you what's correct. Reproof tells you what you need to fix. Correction is how you get it right. And instruction, how to stay right. I think that's useful. hope it's useful. But continue the passage in Peter. Peter can just finish that off. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things be before, beware, lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. This is Peter talking. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? Lest being led, led away with the error of the wicked, you fall from your own steadfastness. Superficially, that might be picked by someone to say you could lose your salvation. That's, a, that's an issue we need to resolve right early. Fall from your steadfastness. Fall from what? Your, your salvation? Become a non-saved? No, that's not what I'm talking about. But apparently you can fall and miss the mark. We'll get to that later. Paul's writing this letter, I believe... And when one understands the forgeries that were circulated about the Thessalonian letters, then there are several passages. When you understand that they were forgery, you won't understand 2 Thessalonians until you realize it's a response to a forgery that Paul talks about. Okay? Once you understand that, several passages start to make more sense. And at the end of that letter, Paul includes a sort of private mark, a personal token so that they would know it came from Paul. He not only signed it, the secretary wrote it, but he signed it with his hand, and he included something that they would recognize as his token, as his fingerprint, as his style. It closes in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. Notice he's emphasizing that he signed this by his own hand, Okay. And he would also include a private mark at the end so they would know it was from him. You ready for the private mark? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And you say, well, come on, Chuck. That's no big deal. That's in all the letters. No, it isn't. It's only in Paul's letters. No other writer in the New Testament uses that word. This is a signature item including virtually every letter. And we go through them all. I won't, I'll spare you that. You can check it out yourself. 
Every one of these, Paul's epistles, closes with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Well, how does the book of Hebrews end? Now, I, I take that as being significant. Grace be with you all. Amen. Why is this impressive? Because the word grace does not even appear in any other epistle except one. Peter does make a reference to it, but it's not in a salutation. It's used in an exhortation, not in the salutation, as a style item, in other words. It's interesting, in Romans 8, you may recall, Paul lists a number of things that cannot separate you from the love of Christ. He lists seven things and then adds ten more for 17. In Hebrews, he does the same thing again. We find a similar list in chapter 12. There are seven things and then ten more. That same pattern. And by the way, he does the same thing in Galatians 5. Romans, he Hebrews, and Galatians have the same structural style, but there's far more than that coming. Paul uses the Greek word huios as sons rather than the similar Greek word technon, which other writers use, which actually means children. Paul uses sons rather than children. It's an equivalent term. It's a style. It's strictly a style issue, but that's Paul's style. The doctrine discussed in Romans 8.16 and Hebrews 10.15 are collinear. The doctrines discussed in 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5 are collinear. The writer says, pray for us. Doesn't sound significant, does it? Except there's, he is the only one epistle writer that makes that statement. Only Paul, in his letters, says, pray for us. Not a big deal. It's strict, I'm strictly not talking doctrine here, just style. But it's interesting the style fits. Okay, there's a bigger issue. In the main epistles, we find there is an emergent phrase from Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. And we discover that the book of Romans is a description of who the just are. And Galatians explains how they shall live, and the book of Hebrews, on that they shall live by faith. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>